I thought this was gonna be a pretty straight like ABCD thing where we'd like go through the plot and this one's been all over the shop. Welcome back to Replaying Favorites. It's the podcast that has two households, both alike in dignity. I'm Brie Callahan. I'm Chris Kelly. And today we are watching the 1996 Baz Luhrmann film, Romeo plus Juliet, that stars Leonardo DiCaprio and Claire Danes as the titular Romeo plus Juliet. Chris, you've seen this movie once before, right? But like, it's a low recall movie for you. Yes, I saw this in high school. I was 16 when this came out and saw it in the theaters. My main connection to the movie is actually the soundtrack, which I loved and listened to constantly. Other than that, I think I've seen discrete scenes multiple times. I know that they meet through a fish tank. That's like a scene everyone shows. But I don't have a lot of uh, recall of specifics other than being an English major in college and having read Romeo and Juliet many times. I feel like the supporting cast in particular is incredibly strong. And I feel like that's something maybe that was not something you would have appreciated as a teen that you might as an adult. But I guess we'll see. Um, Do you have any questions or thoughts before we watch R plus J? No, all I remember is that there's going to be a lot of neon colors and chippity choppity editing, and I look forward to it. Yeah, and more guns than you think. (laughs) I do remember there being guns. Yeah, that's American culture for you. I did not have a segue out from that, so... So we'll talk about it after the break. Welcome back from the break. We have watched the 1996 Baz Luhrmann version of Romeo and Juliet. It stars Leonardo DiCaprio, Claire Danes, Brian Dennehy, John Leguizamo, Pete Postlethwaite, Paul Servino, Diane Vernora, Harold Perrineau, and Vondi Curtis Hall, among others. It was made for $14.5 million, and it brought in $151.8 million at the box office. So, I mean, to be honest, I'm kind of surprised that they pulled this level of a production off with all of these pretty heavy hitters at the time for $14.5 million. Like, the sets alone feel like they would have cost a whole lot. But that's neither here nor there. Chris, what did you think of Romeo and Juliet? I had a good time with it. It definitely feels dated. I have critiques, but I enjoyed it actually more than I thought I would. I kind of figured this would be something that didn't hold up. And I think a lot of it really does. Yeah, I agree. I think what's kind of funny about it is the first five minutes are bananas. The entire gas station scene is just completely wild. It settles down for a little bit, and then it has sort of some wacky setup for the party. And then the party itself is also bananas because it's like literally drug fueled. And then after that, the movie's pretty straight. There's so much Boz Lerman-ness like right at the beginning. And then it kind of settles down into a pretty traditional film in the back half. Yeah, you can see all of his bad instincts getting really indulged early on. I have a lot of notes about things that happen mainly in the first five minutes. And some of those come back and are repeated themes that I have problems with throughout. But I think everything that I dislike about the movie is set up in that opening scene. Well, let's step right back to the beginning, which is, 
I think kind of an interesting way to frame the film is like, obviously, if it was a stage play, you'd have a narrator who comes out and gives the setup for the movie. That's done here via a news anchor on TV who gives sort of the broad strokes. And media is routinely used as a framing device throughout the movie to kind of like give a little bit of exposition when it's needed. What I don't understand is why after we have the narrator give the opening soliloquy, we then have Pete Postlethwaite do it right again in, in voiceover as we introduce the characters. Like, there was just too much badness. He really likes to beat you over the head with things. There are a few instances of repeated lines or repeated dialogue that he wants to emphasize. He loves an on-screen text for something that we already fucking know. Like, just have everyone call the gun a sword and we get it. You don't need to label it every single time you show a gun. It's just irritating. Like, I remember finding that sort of madcap cutting and the high level of music and just the cacophony in the in the gas station kind of fun as a kid. It is borderline unwatchable now. Like, all those boys are doing way too much. Like, Jamie Kennedy, take it down by, like, 50%. There's also just... Actually, the note I have is like, there's so such strong, like, bad Beastie Boys energy in that first 10 minutes. It's like he was trying to go for the music video to sabotage, but like, it didn't go well. I think you're right that in particular, the side character boys are just part of a different film, it feels like. They're so energetic and loud in a way that doesn't mesh with the surroundings that we later see that they are in. Yeah, I think that's extremely true. I would say that the overall tension in this movie is between people who can speak Shakespeare and people who cannot speak Shakespeare. And I don't know what was done with the casting. I feel bad calling out individual people, though we will certainly do that throughout this. But like, there are some people in here who just cannot say the words in an order that sounds like human language. Let's just get into what it takes to perform Shakespeare, because I think this movie is a master class in both what works and what doesn't. For me, when I think of how to handle the performing of Shakespeare, I think the common pitfall to fall into would be to just deliver the lines very casually in a modern cadence, which is what some of these actors do. And that doesn't actually convey meaning because these lines are not in modern dialect. So you kind of have to overact in a very specific way. And so you look at someone like Miriam Margulies, who is broad, but is still laser precise in how she's broad and when and why she's broad. I mean, we're going to have a whole sidebar where we just talk about Miriam Margulies because the moment she arrives on screen, I just kind of start crying. <laughs> so because I am so attached to her her performance as nurse, but I think the counterpoint to your, I think, very accurate statement is another way to not go about it is to just sing song the rhymes over and over and over again, because there are also people who are doing that. For me, a really great example of how not to do Shakespeare, and I don't want to discredit this actor because I think they are doing what they were directed to do. But I think the opening monologue from the newscaster is a smart directorial choice, except that the cadence of a newscaster being completely impassive is exactly what Shakespeare doesn't need, because she reads the lines flatly, because that is what a newscaster does, but then they don't have meaning, and I think that opening monologue ends up getting thrown away if you're not already familiar with the text. 
Especially because you then immediately hand it over to Pete Postlethwaite, who is a masterclass in delivering Shakespeare incredibly impeccably. I don't 100% agree. I think the woman who plays the newscaster does a pretty good job. But I, 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 I definitely take the point. I think the opening scene turns around when someone like John Leguizamo comes in. Again, he's heightened without overdoing it. He's really specific about the choices he's making of how to punch these lines in the right places to make this a performance that reads even though the language isn't our natural speaking rhythm. He is incredible as Tybalt. As I said during our episode on Tu Wong Fu, this is the role that I know him for. So even when he's cast later in Moulin Rouge, I always just view him as this like incredibly serious, careful actor. You can pretty much tell almost instantly when you see someone appear on the screen who is going to be good at this and who is not based on how their mouth is moving. And as soon as you see John Lucasama show up, you know it's going to be solid. The mouth thing, I think, is very important because I don't think a lot of young actors understand the importance of enunciation when the words aren't what we're used to hearing. Like, you can't fill in the blanks with Shakespeare. You have to hear every syllable. And so some of these kids need to learn their consonants. Romeo's set of cousins is the biggest problem, I think, because most of these boys were cast based on their appearance in other 90s cinema, whereas I don't think that's the case for the Capulets. And in particular, I think the biggest crime, I'm just going to lay my cards on the table now, I think the biggest crime in this movie is Leonardo DiCaprio. Like, he just cannot speak it. Some of the line readings are awful, and it sucks because he's really good in the moments where he is not speaking. But when he has to like yell things in particular, oh man, it's just so cringeworthy. And it sucks having him against Danes, who mostly does a really great job for a very young woman in this role. I didn't love either of them all the way through. I think both of them have their moments, but I also think both of them fall flat on their face a few times. My memory had been that she was sort of great from start to finish, and I did see her this time struggle with a couple of the soliloquies, but she also gets the benefit of getting to work almost exclusively with the really great actors in this film, including Paul Sorvino, uh, Diane Venora, and Miriam Margulies, and Paul Rudd, who I think does an excellent job, and good God, if you... Oh my God, are we going to fight? So... I want to be clear that I think Paul Rudd is a very talented performer overall. I thought he was the worst person in this movie. So now we've both made shocked faces at each other. I think he's great. I think he handles the dialogue well. I think he's charming and very stupidly funny. Who knew that we were going to get so much Paul Rudd dancing throughout all of our lives? I, I just so strongly disagree. We're just on the opposite ends of a long divide. Like, I didn't believe a millisecond of what he was doing. Well, I think Paris is supposed to be kind of a phony. And I just think he's, oh, wow. I I might not have anything to add because, like, I just, compl- I think he, if, if you gave me the choice to cast this film, I would cast him as Romeo. And I think this film would be, like, 200% better. Oh, wow. I would not watch that film having seen this one. I don't I I like I don't know if we've ever just like disagreed so strongly on something that is empirically true. Well, that's things that like I I have <laughs> I have no data to back me up. I just wasn't feeling it. This is just like how some people think that cilantro tastes like soap. Getting back to it. So, 
What is your impression of DiCaprio? He was 50-50 for me. There were times when I felt that he really grasped how to do this. There are specific moments that felt good. And I think maybe you're right that part of it is that he needs a stronger scene partner than he sometimes has. He's mostly hanging out with boys that, like, didn't have a shirt budget for whatever reason. <laughs> Very true. Even Pete Postlethwaite. I do not need to see Pete Postlethwaite's nipples in this film. <laughs> I guess I'm not, like, here for, but I also don't mind shirtless Pete Postlethwaite. I should say that I love, 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 love Pete Postlethwaite. I want to be clear. I think every adult in this movie is knocking it out of the park. Their adult cast is clearly culled from people who knew what they were doing. Yeah. Passothwaite, Sorvino, Venora, Margulies, Dennehy. Hilarious that he's like fourth build or something because he's in what, two scenes and like both of them are in a car. <laughs> he says like four <laughs> lines. Paul Sorvino, on the other hand, good God, he's so good. He's, I mean, he and Diane Venora, who, let me just, I know two things about her. One, she's not Jessica Lange, though she looks exactly like Jessica Lange in this movie. And because of this movie, I recognize her in anything she's in, including the fact that the only thing I remember about the movie The Insider is that she is in it and that I was so excited to see her. And I literally can't tell you anything else about who was in that movie or what it was about. That is how much Diane Venora's performance in this movie as Lady Capulet, like, centered and lives in my brain. What I mainly know her from is that she was also in the Ethan Hawke Hamlet. Oh, the less said about that, the better. But yes, yeah, the Paul Sorvino, I don't even have an adjective. Every moment that he is giving, I don't think could be done better. It cannot it's funny because Capulet in the play is not written this cruel or this drunk, but like, so, you know, we gave Baz Luhrmann a lot of shit for the auteurness of the opening scene, but he's also reimagined some of these characters in ways that I think really, really work. Like having Pete Postlethwaite's priest be like a drunk Having Paul Sorvino be this like violent drunk who abuses his wife and daughter. The fact that they got Margulies Sorvino and Venora together is just like such a masterclass in like watching Shakespeare happen. Like, and it's, it, you know, people are always like, no, oh, I don't like Shakespeare because it's like hard to understand. It's not. Like, when you have people who know how to speak it, it is not. If you don't understand what is happening, it's because the people are not speaking it correctly. Which is why it's a letdown that much of the young cast is fine, but not great, because I think a lot hangs on their shoulders, and the best scenes are the ones that they don't have to carry. I'm going to make an argument for Claire Danes. I think she is more capable of speaking the language, and I think she gives a very open and honest performance as Juliet. Like, she seems very genuine, and like, she's not trying to be cool. Whereas, kind of what irritates me about DiCaprio in this role is that he just seems like he's kind of playing this like cool it boy for a lot of the film. Like there's so many shots of him just like with dirty hair, reading poetry, like looking, you know, moody. He just seems like he's trying to be a movie star in this movie. And I don't get that vibe from from Danes. And it like makes her performance, even when she stumbles, a lot more palatable to me. So a challenge for me that is a directing critique and actually not a critique of either of their performances is that 
all of the side characters are given pretty clear personalities. And a lot of them have, as you pointed out, big risks taken with them. He has a solid sense of the exact mold, even if it's a boring mold, that Leonardo DiCaprio fits into as Romeo. I think he falls really short of giving Juliet a coherent personality or even, like, traits that you could glom onto other than, like, winsome. Yeah, it's like ingenue. The thing that struck me this time, for whatever reason, is during the marriage scene, the fact that she doesn't have any friends who come to see her off because Romeo has like Balthazar and I think somebody else there. And there's no one there for her. Like she literally only interacts with adults. She never interacts with other kids her age. And it's just like struck me as incredibly sad for whatever reason. And it would have been really interesting to explore if she was particularly sheltered and that showed up in how she behaved or if she was a loner for some other reason. Like, there's just so many other ways that other characters have distinctness implied upon them. And that's just a missed opportunity with Juliet, which is a big missed opportunity because she's half the title. I think the city of Verona is also kind of a cool character. Like, I think Baz's sort of glam style makes it really apparent the destruction that this town has gone through as a result of this feud. Like, there's so many, like, broken down theaters and buildings. It's clear that many of the sets are built for this to take place in, and so it's very distinctly sort of an American city, maybe like an L.A. or a Miami. Like, it's got sort of like a very urban but southern part of the United States feel without clinging to any one exact place. I do think the gigantic religious statues everywhere feel immensely out of place, both in an American city and in the context of this plot. There's no commentary about Catholicism, he's just layering it on real thick. Obviously, I don't know what's going on in Baz Luhrmann's head, but it strikes me that he was just attracted by, like, the gaudiness of Catholicism. It's kind of fun in a sort of like technicolor way, but you're right. There's no sort of deeper level to the degree to which Catholicness has been taken out of like the scenes just in the church and has been brought into like every facet of these people's lives. And I think there's so much to mine in terms of how religion functions in our society. And so it's really disappointing to pretend like you're going to do that. And then it's just an outfit. Part of the problem is that Baz is really interested in things visually. So even if they don't necessarily relate to each other, he is like happy to put them together. And I think the other problem is that this is an Australian trying to like tell a deeper story about what he thinks American racial tensions are. And so instead of this being a story about religious tensions, which seems like what he's going for with the visuals, it becomes this sort of like whites versus Latinos thing. It just feels like he saw West Side Story and was like, that, but modern. I had a lot of questions about why the Capulets have a lot of, like, Latino street gang presence. Okay, I don't have a question about why the side characters are Latino and the leads are still white. That's a very easily answerable question. But it stood out that they set up the first scene, like you said, as a West Side Story, but then our leads couldn't possibly be Latino. Because he's 
putting so many pieces together, it just winds up everybody being sort of like vaguely Spanish on the Capulet side. Like there is some Day of the Dead and other like Mexican iconography. There's some Puerto Rican stuff. But then there's also like Rio de Janeiro, which is in Brazil where they speak Portuguese. So it all just feels like this real kind of just mishmash of cultures. And then on the other side, you've got the Montagues who are just sort of like generically white and nothing is ever said about it again. It just sets up the Capulets as like the other, except for Juliet. And she can relate to Romeo because they're both white. It's not great. So I read the IMDb page for this movie. And what really stuck out to me is that they looked at Harold Perrineau after deciding that Mercutio should be black. And that's very different from just having an open call for actors of all races. That's emblematic of, I feel like, how this movie handled race. I completely agree. I did not know that fact. But what winds up happening is that Captain Prince, the news anchor from the beginning, and Mercutio, they've cast three black actors as kind of like the neutral people in this race war between like whites and Latinos. And I think Baz Luhrmann had observed American race relations from afar and then made a movie that he wound up deciding had to have that kind of at its core. And it's clumsy. Let's talk a little bit about Mercutio and his starring role at the big party where Romeo and Juliet eventually meet. Harold Pirineau. Sir, I'm so sorry that a lot of your career devolved into you screaming like, where's Walt? Because he's so great in this movie. Sorry, I'm referencing Lost. Have you seen Lost? <laughs> he was one of the few actors that I distinctly remembered from my first time watching this movie. Like, I didn't remember Jamie Kennedy was in this. Harold Perrineau has stuck with me forever because of how incredibly he navigates all of this. This was the first time that I noticed that he gets a new wig when he gets to the party. So I was reading a little bit about that. I think it's supposed to be Romeo's heightened reality based on the fact that he's on drugs. Until this viewing, I had kind of always thought that the reason Mercutio and friends had been invited to this party was because they were like having him perform Young Hearts Run Free. I kind of like the version that I had better where like Mercutio was like giving this incredible, like fun performance to Young Hearts Run Free. I love that version too. I agree with you that I don't think that's what happened. But what a lovely metatextual take on things. <laughs> so also at the party, we finally have our star-crossed lovers meeting. Romeo is plunging his face into a pool of water because he's on so many drugs. And when he lifts his head, he sees a fish tank behind him. And then on the other side, there is big-eyed Juliet and they fall in love. However, in the background is a man at a urinal. So like, Romeo's just like in the men's toilets. I don't <laughs> like... Okay, so this is weird because it seems like the venue is their home. They're in public toilets. No one has a urinal in their home. And also, if you were to do that, would you install a fish tank between those two objects? Probably not. It seems weird that one of the main features of the separate men's and women's room is that you can look right through into the other. <laughs> what a delight for everyone involved. I'm with you that I like the visual of two people looking at each other through a fish tank. And when you're building a movie, you can put a fish tank anywhere. If he comes out of the bathroom and through a fish tank sees a woman and they look at each other through the fish tank, that's all you need. He should not be in a restroom. 
I think maybe they couldn't think of another place that would be like that quiet at the party because all of the rest of the party is just like a complete cacophony. Well, for someone who's seen West Side Story so many times, apparently, Baz Luhrmann doesn't know that the party gets quiet when you see Juliet. That's just how it happens. The whole rest of the world fades away. (laughs) I suppose that's true. So Romeo leaves and returns to the Capulet castle. I think overall the balcony scene is a little clumsy because my guess would be that this is one of the first scenes they filmed together. I don't know why I think that. I think it's because Danes doesn't seem as comfortable with the language here as she does elsewhere. But I think it's a pretty cute scene between the two of them. And I think more specifically, it is filmed very beautifully. Like I think having the pool there is cute. And it's much more interesting than them having them static in two different places. I agree with you that I like the motion of the scene. I don't think that Baz Luhrmann is always great at telegraphing the physical location of his two actors. There's several balconies, and it's not clear which one Claire Danes is at at any given time. There's also a moment where she is supposed to be looking off into space. I was 100% certain that she was looking directly at him. And then in the next scene, he sneaks up behind her, and I'm like, girl, you're just staring at him on the trellis. He's not hiding. Yeah, she has no peripheral vision, apparently. What I think is great about this scene, actually, is that These are supposed to be two kids engaging in their first like real love experience. And it's kind of clumsy, like the the kissing is a little weird, but like they definitely seem like they're actually making out and like it's maybe, you know, they're like kids making out in a pool. And like it's I also had forgotten how many body jokes Juliet really has, like what satisfaction canst thou have tonight? And also later she says, I am sold, but not yet enjoyed. (laughs) And I like that Lerman gives Juliet an understanding of like sexuality and like wanting as well. I am at the opposite end of the Jurassic Park Laura Dern situation with you right now. I am seeing the literal problem you had with Laura Dern of there being two different versions of this character in some ways. Like I think that the parts of her that are girliest and smiliest just don't land with me. And that's at least 50% of what she's asked to do, which I think is more in line with what the character is as written. I guess I feel like the direction of Juliet is lazy in a lot of ways. I don't think Baz Luhrmann cares as much about Juliet as he does about Romeo's shirtless friends. Yeah, the inner life that Juliet has or what she would or would not be aware of as a girl in this situation isn't fully explored. I mean, her father literally beats her into submitting to a marriage. So she's not a person who's at liberty to give away her virginity because that is what she is valued for. And that burden is placed on Juliet and Juliet alone. I mean, I guess historically also like all women throughout time. Um, But you can sense the frustration on her part that she literally cannot have sex until she is married, though she very much wants to have sex with this boy. And I like that Danes brings that energy to it. But you're right that Lerman's focus on Romeo over Juliet and his interest in him over her is a shame because Juliet's a pretty interesting character. She has a lot of sharp dialogue, which Romeo doesn't actually have. Like, he's a pretty boring character. So much of Baz Luhrmann's direction is about reinterpreting these characters and finding things to project onto them that make sense in a modern context. And I think there's so much modern teenage girl that he could have found 
And instead, she's the one character that feels like a transplant from the Shakespearean era. She's still just like, I'm just a winsome virgin. And I'm like, no, she's a 1990s teen in this fucked up city you made. Like, give her a little something. That's a really good point. I hadn't thought about it that way. And I think that that's really accurate. Again, I think that ties into the fact that she doesn't get to interact with anyone else but adults. She has no friends. She doesn't she literally is not allowed to exist outside the home, which also isn't explored. Like, that would be really, really interesting. The one place where that is explored and completely dropped is when the security guard peeps in on the pool and she gives him, like, a flirty smile to try and diffuse the situation. And I would have loved if the rest of the movie had that kind of thought put into it about what Juliet does to manage this really difficult situation. Her life isn't explored. Now, she does have her relationship with Nurse. As a matron, Nurse is given a lot more ability to, like, go out and do things. And I think that's explored. Uh, can we just talk about Miriam Margulies? We've given her short shrift. Miriam's just such, like, a great stocky lady. And they make the boys are all, like, discomfited by her. And the relationship that Nurse and Juliet have both makes and breaks my heart in every single every single time that I watch this. Margulies just has such a sense of care towards this girl from the moment you see her that like it just encompasses Juliet in this sort of like cocoon of love for the entirety of the movie. And I just love it so much. In a pantheon of really strong actors, Miriam Margulies fully runs away with this movie. Like her performance is always giving like four or five emotions at once. She's really good at working in a subtext to a role that didn't have to be nearly as important as it is. Like this could have been a fairly straightforward, nice lady takes care of nice girl. And she's got a bunch of other ideas. When you see this movie as a teen girl yourself, like you can imagine yourself like in this kind of like runaway romance and like things get out of control. And like all you ever hope is that there's like one stern buxom lady who can go like out boxing for you and can like help you out. That is what Mary Margulies does for Claire Danes. And it like makes my heart swell with joy. Honestly, I want to have lunch with Miriam Margulies. Dear friends, do yourself a favor, Google Miriam Margulies interviews and just like watch whatever the fuck YouTube tells you to watch because she is as feisty, if not more so, in real life as she is as nurse in this movie. I am difficult to shock with a story. That girl has made me blush. Oh, she's done some shit. And I've done some shit, but like, she's done some shit. I, this is a Miriam Margulies stan account. Oh my god, this entire podcast, If from now on, can we just be Miriam Margulies movies? That's the thing, though, is that she's almost always cast as, like, second fiddle because she doesn't fit the conception of, like, what Hollywood beauty and, like, all these things look like. And what a fucking missed opportunity because she is the highlight of everything I have ever seen her in. So, Miriam, we love you. This is just an Alfre Woodard, Miriam Margulies podcast. With occasional appearances by Holly Hunter. If the three of them were in a movie together, we would just review that every week. So with a lot of regret, we must turn our attention back to the boys in this plot. There's a pretty cute scene between Benvolio and Mercutio on the beach. Like, it's a very relaxed, 
scene of like two friends hanging out. It obviously gets disrupted by the Capulets arriving and then eventually Romeo arriving. I got to give Baz Luhrmann a lot of credit for setting this all like on the beach. Like somehow it really works, like because there are really lines in the Shakespeare story about how like in these hot days. And I don't think that's what he means. He means like these violent days. But like the fact that they've set it on a beach, like Lerman does a lot of good work in interpreting some of the language into the settings of where he puts people. And I think that part really works. Yeah, this scene, I hate to say it plays to his weaknesses, but it plays to the parts that he likes to indulge, that it has these macho dudes having a macho fight in a really overdone setting but that preference works with a scene like this so the tension is there in a really epic way and that's also due to the good actress he has this feels like the right way to take a stage property and make it into a big epic movie what i found really compelling about the scene this time was the contrast to the seeming like braggadocio of the gas station scene There are a lot of characters in this scene worried about the violence that they've been experiencing. And you also see it a lot in John Leguizamo's face, um, which I give him immense credit for. When things start to spiral out of control and they're unlike what he thought was going to happen, they all feel like they're trapped in it. All of them seem like they don't actually want this killing to happen. And yet they feel inexorably on this road to death. Yeah, this scene, unfortunately, is really undercut again by that really overdone opening scene in that we start by seeing John Leguizamo not just possessing guns, but being really good at shooting. And so you get the impression that he must just go around shooting people. I mean, not that anyone gets hit in that opening scene. Everyone remains a terrible shot for the entire movie. There's a scene at the end where there are so many gunshots happening and I'm like, all right, everyone in Verona is just the most terrible shot in the entire world, but go ahead. Bunch of stormtroopers around here, but it doesn't make sense with this version of the character who is really shocked by violence because his initial portrayal makes you assume that he's drawn blood before. But I think it's that he doesn't know what to do with himself because they've never been in this situation before. Like things have always proceeded apace, right? Like they've always gone exactly how they've always gone. And the fact that there is a way out of the violence here, I think really destabilizes him. And they almost get away with it. They almost ratchet the tension down enough to where they could live with each other. And instead, he makes the choice to stab Mercutio, which then winds up being a plague on both their houses. And you're right. I think he should have dialed back the casualness of the gas station scene in order to make the scene read better. Following the death of his best friend, that's when Romeo completely flies off the rails and follows Tybalt and shoots him. And I've talked about how I don't think that Leonardo DiCaprio is good at speaking these words. But if there is a reason why Leonardo DiCaprio is cast in this movie, I think it is for the moment where he shoots Tybalt. Like, between the two of them, it is so raw. And like the tears in DiCaprio's eyes and everything else about that moment is so intense. I think... Leonardo DiCaprio generally does better with the extremes of the dialogue. And I think when he has to push further and go bigger, he gets to the like a more Miriam Margulies place that he needs to be at for the rest of the movie. Oh, man, see, 
I disagree. It is an incredible moment of acting where he is absolutely physically present in that moment. And you absolutely believe that he has just killed someone and is so angry and so terrified and so sad about it. And then he immediately screams, I am fortune's fool. And I'm like, his, some of his line readings are so awful that I need to die. But then some of his actual acting is so good. I get that. I have the same thing with Claire Danes, though. Like, one of the other only things that I remembered about this movie from teenagerhood is that her final sob in the church. How dare you? Sounds stop. So I no, can't. Stop. No, stop it. I want that moment. I'm so mad at you. I want that moment to be beautiful, and I think she sounds so dumb. I'm gonna hang up. <laughs> I, I. You could not be more wrong. Oh, oh my god! No, that is the Claire Danes cry of just like absolute. Like that's after the crumple chin. You get crumple chin, and then you get like the whole cry, and that is the whole cry. And how dare you, sir? There's something specific, and I, again, maybe this is like an editing thing, but it's because it's totally silent, and there's just like a three, like, and then it's totally silent again. It felt like that meme of Nicolas Cage where he literally says boo-hoo in a crying scene. I'm so angry at you right now. <laughs> it is at that point in the movie that I am just like, I... La lose it. I'm telling you, if Claire Danes is crying, I am crying. There's no, I am not able to control it. Like, I had to take a decongestant after I watched this movie last night. <laughs> of all of the movies that we've done, I thought this one was going to get a lot of, like, laugh lines out of us. And, like, this has been the most serious one, I think, that we've done. Like, this is more serious than Gone Girl. You have been furious with me several times. <laughs> well, you have been incorrect in a really outstanding way. I have spoken poorly of both Paul Rudd and Claire Danes, and these are unforgivable acts. You slandered Paul Rudd, like, right up the top, and we've not recovered. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> Better off dead part two. So, to my mind, I think the climax of the film is the scene where... They fuck. <laughs> you said climax. All I right. just... I just... <laughs> It just... No, no, I, I, I know how you got there. I'm just still upset about it. But <laughs> I was going to say the scene where Paul Servino beats Claire Dane. So it was a real contrast into what you were saying. <laughs> you should take that whole intro again. I apologize. No, no, I think we should leave all this in. <laughs> My God. I'm trying to think of a, a different way to run the scene. Obviously, I shrink away from the level of violence that Paul Servino brings to this scene. But I also think it's so effective for the three women that are in the scene as well in terms of like the collapse of Juliet's relationship with her mother, her desperation and turning to nurse about what she should do. I can't imagine it being played out any other way. Well, I think it has to be that way because there's no other way to justify a script in a mid-90s movie being about a father telling his daughter who she has to marry. It's funny that you describe it as being set in the 90s, because although I realize that there are cars and guns and payphones, this movie always feels out of space and time to me. Like, I don't recognize this movie as something that is, like, contemporary to my life. Really? 
it is aggressively trying to be contemporary. When I view it, I view her as like a sort of a, a fantasy realm. Like I don't view it as really like something that's supposed to be taking place in our world necessarily. I would guess that Baz Luhrmann was going for exactly that. So I think he may have failed. And again, it's because he doesn't give a fuck about Juliet. Yeah, that sounds about right. So Friar Lawrence, who is like Romeo's best friend and is also like a drunken priest who makes poison. Sure. And he's also around a lot of young boys. Maybe there is commentary about the Catholic Church in here. (laughs) Yeah, maybe there is. And then I think Dane's most affecting scene is when she meets with Friar Lawrence and puts the gun to her head. And like the one thing that gets me every time that like I literally choke up at is like, be not long to speak for I long to die. What's funny about this movie is you can tell what take uh, Claire Danes is on because she has a complexion like I have, where you can tell if she's already done one or two takes where she's had to cry. Because <laughs> she looks a little, little pink in the face, a little swollen, a little swollen around those eyes. And that's definitely one of them, but she sells the fuck out of it. And so Friar Lawrence comes up with this plan to make Juliet appear dead. Spoiler alert, it doesn't work out. <laughs> Yeah, from here on out, it's it's pretty rough. Okay, so in the real Romeo and Juliet, he takes the potion, he dies, and then Juliet wakes up. And there is a little bit of tragedy for tragedy's sake. But like, it's so effective here because she just looks at him with like such loving and delight. And Leonardo DiCaprio's face when he realizes like what has just gone wrong is so perfect. I was worried. I thought you were going in the other direction, that you hated that change. I agree that it is really smart and plays to their strengths and gives the two lovers one last moment because they don't have a lot of on-screen time together. So just in like a building a script sense, it's nice to have your lead characters interact even in a small way once in a while. I mean, it's manipulative. Oh, Romeo and Juliet as a script is manipulative full stop. That's not all Lerman's fault. He's leaning on what Shakespeare put there. Also, I mean, I know that neither of us is like salivating for Leonardo DiCaprio, but I don't think he's ever looked more beautiful than that church scene. Like they are practically a lesbian couple. I like him because he's quiet in this scene. Let me put it that way. (laughs) Wow. That there's like backhanded compliments and then there's compliments that run you over with a car like (laughs) god damn he's perfect when he's not speaking in this movie let me put it this way there are moments of sheer brilliance from him in this movie that i don't think another actor could have gotten to specifically in the tybalt scene especially here in this like final the final monologue and like saying goodbye to juliet because i think he really excels but i think overall a different actor might not have gotten to those heights, but would have made the scenes where he's talking at length a little bit more palatable <laughs> and enjoyable. I like him better than you do in general in this film, so I would not advocate to replace him, but I see your point. I think that the parts where he's good are are worth it. Like, I don't... I know you're going to hate this. I don't love Claire Danes in this, but I think that she's good enough that I'm not necessarily like, get Sarah Michelle Geller out here. That being said, <laughs> so they die. And <laughs> no, I need to come back from that. I think that was a perfect transition. I don't know why you're worried about it. <laughs> <laughs> I've seen this movie a lot of times. I've never escaped 
from this scene without tears running down my face. And part of that is a tribute to Leo. Part of that is a tribute to Claire. Part of that is a tribute to I'm very afraid that either or both of them is going to light on fire during the scene because there are so many candles. All I could think of was like the two sad PAs who just kept having to run in and relight candles one by one. And like that must have taken a million years. Well, that's their own Romeo and Juliet, isn't it? (laughs) Never was there a tale of more woe than these two PAs and their relighting of candles. You're a modern day bard, Brie Callahan. Um, I don't know. I, you know, and then the film closes with the same sort of mediated response to this act of violence as it has to the other act of violence. And this kind of ties back to our earlier discussion. I do think that like Lerman is trying to make some sort of a discourse on American violence and how it is mediated and presented through like the news and kind of these other things. I don't know if it especially works again, because I don't think that he has a real grasp on like what the real levers of tension in American culture are because he's not American. But overall, as a movie that is designed to be a lot of spectacle that like absolutely just guts you at the end, as I think Moulin Rouge is, it works. I cry every time. So good job, Baz. You did it. Yeah, I would give this I think an A in terms of taking the Romeo and Juliet script and bringing it into the 90s, I would probably give it like a C minus in terms of having broader commentary about other aspects of modern life in the 90s. And he maybe should have jettisoned that aspiration altogether. But as just the story, I think it works. And I think it holds up better than I thought it would. Like, I was concerned going in that certain scenes would be too much. And the scene in particular that I thought would be too much definitely was. But some of the scenes that I thought might be a little obnoxious, like I thought that scene on the beach might be a little bit more annoying than I remembered. And I thought it was actually really solid. Overall, I'm glad to have gone back and watched this. I agree with you. I was surprised that it landed as well as it did. Hell, I came real close to dyeing my hair pink after I saw Jamie Kennedy in this opening scene, so it had some kind of impact on me. Thank you for replaying this favorite with me. I'm sorry that you were wrong about Paul Rudd. I agree with some of your critiques about Claire Danes. So, in a spirit of mutual love and admiration, what are we going to watch next? So, Brie, as you know, and as our listeners may or may not know... Every fifth episode, we like to shake up the format around here. So this time for our fifth episode, we're going to pick a movie that seems like it should be a favorite, but that neither of us has actually seen all the way through, which means we're watching Newsies. Huzzah! So Brie, I've never seen any of this movie. How much of Newsies have you seen? I've watched exactly as much of this movie as you can fit into one AP US class period. So less than half of it, I would say. Yeah, like 40 minutes. I don't even know if those were all contiguous. It was well over 20 years ago. I would say that I know that Christian Bale is in it. I believe that the young man from Doogie Howser might also be in it. And they sing and dance about the evils of Mr. Pulitzer. That's all I got. Yeah, my entire exposure to this movie is that when I was a camp counselor in college, the young campers sang one song from this movie. So I'm familiar with the audio of a song known as Seize the Day, but 
who sings it or in what context that is done is beyond me. And that's literally my only touch point for this. And I'm sure you like hate that song because it was sung at you relentlessly by a bunch of young children. I mean, they were all between four and six years old. God only knows what they're up to today. Uh, one of them is probably extremely talented. I'm sure they're like tiny little communists. Good for them. Good, good indoctrination newsies, I assume. We don't know because we haven't seen the movie. So we're going to go watch it and we will see you next week. All right. Bye. I still wonder what would happen in season two of my so-called life.